right now we're, we're back. We're looking at uh, what is so glorious about Jesus. I mean, as we are moving to Advent and the coming of Christ, as we've read from Isaiah 40, and as Isaiah 40 is going to go on to say, and, you know, behold our God, which motivates our, you know, that Christmas song that we sing and, and, and all of this. What is so glorious about our Jesus who comes? Because remember, that's Peter is ending his life and his letters here with, with this call to give him glory both now and to the day uh, of eternity. So why does he deserve that glory? And so we've seen how Jesus is our Lord. Uh, we've seen how, uh, what it means that Jesus is our Savior. We saw what one that we needed to be saved to begin with. That's the first thing you've got to convince us of, right? That everything's not okay. Uh, and then that uh, he saves us from our sins. Uh, so we saw that every sin you have committed or thought about committing or will ever commit, Jesus' sacrifice pays for that sin. And uh, we saw that uh, now that he is saving us from our enemies. And so we looked at, this comes from Zechariah, in, not, this comes from Luke chapter 1, but Zechariah is talking there. Uh, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 68. Let's stand in the honor of reading God's word as we're reminded of what we're sort of fleshing out. Why are we fleshing out? That Jesus saves us from our enemies. Well, because the Bible says he's going to come to save us from our enemies. Now we're going to try and understand what does that mean when the Bible tells us that. So that we don't sort of make up our own idea of what it means that he saves us from our enemies. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and God, we want to make much of Jesus uh, and we want to learn how to properly make much of Jesus. Jesus is not praised by our imaginations. He's praised by us taking what he says about himself and believing that and living in light of that and even praising him for it. Uh, and so, God, I pray that today uh, we would understand how uh, and when, I guess we would say, we're saved from our enemies by seeing what your scripture tells us and that we would give uh, you and your son the praise uh, that is deserved as we are moved by the Spirit, to believe and to obey your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, we see here uh, Luke telling us, Zechariah telling us through Luke, that uh, we are supposed to be saved from our enemies, that Jesus is coming to save us from our enemies and the hand, from the hands of all who hate us. And we saw that really both those words, enemies and all who hate us, are both words that just mean People don't like you, right? They just mean uh, that you are going to be hated by certain individuals. So then we looked at, well, who are these enemies? So if we're going to be saved from our enemies, who does the Bible say are enemies, right? It's, it's not, it's, you don't just get to sort of name out like the people on Facebook who don't like you or family members that rub you the wrong way. Uh, what does it mean that you're saved from your enemies? And so we looked uh, at three specific enemies that the Bible talks about and says that these are enemies of us as the people of God. We saw that the fallen world, the world that hates us, uh, we saw Satan, uh, our adversary, who wants to devour us and has his host with him seeking to do that very thing. And we saw death. The last enemy to be defeated will be uh, death. So then if those are enemies and God has promised that in Christ, those enemies will be defeated, the question we've now got to ask is when? When? 
When will Jesus save us from our enemies? Is this just as Christians, some sort of future pie in the sky expectation? How long must we wait? And what can we expect of our lives if our, from these enemies? What are they going to be able to continue to do to us? Now, often what happens is we view our salvation from our enemies as a purely future event. As if everything is sort of just spiraling down the toilet and then at the end, it's like this great reveal. In other words, where it looks like the gospel's failing, it looks like Jesus hadn't really done anything, but then at the end, there's this great sort of reveal. Uh, but until then, it, it is all just suffering servant imagery uh, and we're sort of wringing our hands wondering if Jesus will indeed uh, win one day, but it, it all doesn't look very promising. But that's really not how the Bible presents it. It's not that Jesus is just going to win one day. The Bible says that Jesus has slain our enemies already. That he is reigning right now and that he will rule an eternal kingdom. In other words, the Bible tells us when is Jesus going to save us from our enemies? The Bible says that he has saved us, that he is saving us, and that he will save us from our enemies. Uh, and we're going to see uh, how the Bible, when talking about our enemies, is going to lay Jesus' victory over our enemies in a past the present and in a future way, all three, uh, and see how to how to work all those uh, together. So, so let's begin uh, at seeing how the Bible talks about how Jesus has saved us from our enemies. The first thing we're going to look at is that Jesus has defeated our enemies, that that has already happened. Jesus has defeated, defeated our enemies. So when it comes to Jesus' victory, the Bible is going to be clearer that, that, that Jesus' victory over our enemies is not just some future hope. And Jesus is not just promising us that someday he's going to save us from our enemies. This isn't just a promise you sort of hold on to. Okay, I'm eventually going to get this promise fulfilled where, while the whole time sort of our enemies are just running amok. And it looks like they're winning and it looks like we're losing. No, Jesus tells us he has already beaten our enemies, that he has already defeated them, that Christ has won and has won already. So it, just in general terms, we're going to talk generally. So we're going to look at this in general terms and then look at those specific enemies themselves. But just in general, the fact that Jesus has won, you can look in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter three, where it's going to talk about how Christ not just will conquer, but how Christ has already conquered uh, the enemies. Uh, Revelation chapter three, verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, this is Jesus talking, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So Jesus speaking here and he's encouraging these Christians to stay firm to the end and he's inviting them to a throne. He says, look, if you, can, if you stay firm to the end, if you conquer, uh, then you can sit down on a throne, a throne that he's sitting on. Why is he sitting there? Why is he sitting down? He says he's sitting down because he's already what? He has conquered. Jesus has conquered and sat down. Now, they remember, this was written to a church in the first century. Jesus can write to a first century church and tell them, I have conquered and sat down. Not I will conquer and sit down, but I have conquered and sat down. His victory is not here spoken of in a future event, but it's something that has already happened. You actually see the same thing in Revelation chapter 5. 
This idea of us being able to conquer because our king has already conquered is a pretty significant theme in the first few chapters of Revelation. Especially in Revelation chapter 5, look at what it says there. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So what you have here in Revelation 5 is you've got this horribly sad scene. The the way it begins, you've got God has this scroll, it's sealed with all these seals and an angel asks like, who can open this scroll? And it says he's shouting this, right? Almost like, hurry, someone open this thing. Like, this is great. God's like, huh, look what I got. Uh, And he says, who's going to open it? And no one uh, in the heavens or on earth or under the earth is worthy to open the scroll. He says, is anyone worthy? This is where Andrew Peterson gets that song, Is He Worthy, is based off of this chapter. And there's no one, no one who can open it. And so John just begins to do what? John just begins to cry. It's almost like one of those scenes where, you know, you're, you're watching a movie and it's just like the music. Uh, This only happens to women, but I'm trying to relate to women. Uh, And the music will just play and you'll just start to cry. Uh, This happened the other day with Leslie. She was watching, I think it was Mulan. uh, And she was watching the trailer for Mulan. And the music started playing and she started crying. And she's like, I don't know why I'm crying. I don't even agree with the message. Women shouldn't go to war. And it's all that, you know, all this stuff. She's like, I don't even like Mulan, uh, but I'm crying. Uh, Why? That's sort of the, that's sort of the scene here. Like all this is going on and John just begins to suddenly weep because no one can open the scroll. But then his weeping is stopped. Why? Why? It says, because the lion of Judah, the root of David, he can open the scroll. Now, why can he open the scroll? Because of what he's already done. It says, because he has conquered. Because he has won. And guess who he's conquered? Well, the very enemies that we mentioned last week. In terms of the world, Jesus had already told us this about the world. And in John chapter 16, verse 33, right? It's no, it's no surprise that John, who wrote Revelation, also had already written in, in John 16, verse 33. In terms of the world, Jesus said, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. We, we've, the, the fallen world is still not going to like you. But what does he say? But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus, and this is even before the cross, right? Jesus is able to say that by his very presence, he has overcome already the fallen world. So that the world that stands against believers, that hates them as God's children, that, 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 that hates them as servants of a king they've rebelled against, Jesus says, I have overcome them. So when we're looking at our enemies and you're saying, when is Jesus going to defeat the world? He already says in John 16, 33, take heart, I have overcome the world. What does this mean for us and our rescue from the enemy? Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1. Paul knew about this and said in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, He has delivered us 
from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We've already been delivered. We've already been saved. We've already been rescued through Jesus. We've been delivered from that fallen world, which we were once a part of. Delivered from that domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the son. But what about Satan, right? Well, Satan's, he's still a problem, right? I mean, when God's going to deal with him, but not, but not yet. Well, this question was actually brought up to Jesus during his earthly ministry as well. In Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 27, it's when he starts casting out demons, right? And so he starts casting out demons, and for, for the devil, that's a problem. When someone can just start throwing your, your army to the side, and they start having to beg you not to just kill them, uh, that's normally not a good sign in warfare. Uh, look at what it says. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebub. And... By the princes of demons, he casts out demons. And so we got to come up with some reason that he can do this, which is interesting. They weren't denying that demons were being cast out. This, this, should, this should be, a, a, his victory is going to be a clue to us as why, when we're always like, why don't we see things like that anymore? Because of what Jesus has done. Because of his victory over the demonic already is the reason you're like, how come we don't see Beelzebub type instances right now? But look at what it says. Uh, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So, so they're accusing Jesus of saying he's got, that he's got power over demons. Well, of course, because he's working with the devil, right? Because the devil has power over the demons. And so the way you get power over the demons, Jesus, is you're just working with the devil. That's what's going on. And Jesus says, no, it's not that. He says, I have power over the demonic, not because that house is divided against itself, but because I've gone into that house and bound the strong man and I'm plundering him. It's not that he's saying, all right, you can do stuff with the demons, which is, which is what you would think would have to happen or what they were accusing him of. Instead, he's saying, no, he had nothing to do with this. In fact, I went in, I bound the strong man and I'm plundering his house right now. Uh, that's not something he says that's going to happen. Jesus has already bound the strong man. That's why I always love it when people are like, I bind you, Satan. Like, Jesus already done that. Like, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of like, that's kind of like when the guy's knocked out on the ground and you're like, I'm going to knock you out. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, you don't get to be a toady who's claiming what Jesus has already done. Uh, and and so, so here, Satan has already, he's already bound the strong man and he's plundering his house. We've, in fact, we've already talked about the outcome of this battle. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We stop there because that's talking about how he saves us from our sins. But that's not the end of the passage, is it? Because what does he say in verse 15? He disarmed... He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing 
over them in him. So our debt is obliterated, nailed to the cross, sin forgiven, saved from that. No one would doubt that. No one goes, well, I don't know if we're going to, I think future will be saved from our, we're like, yeah, you're saved from your sin. But what else happened? Christ disarmed our enemies. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, specifically these demonic forces, these rulers and authorities, and he triumphed over them. Now that word triumph, you know, often see in most study Bibles, it'll talk about it. Because it's not like how we just use the word triumph, which means he, he won over them. The word triumph, as, as in victory, comes from, is an actual event. It's, it's not so much, it, it's not so much a, a word that means they won as a, as a type of event. So a, a triumph was an event declared, the Roman Senate, what would happen is when an emperor won a war or a military campaign, the Senate would declare a triumph. And so then the emperor would come into town. You know, you can think of the whole ticker tape parade idea. He'd come into town on a chariot like this, right? Yeah, they always lean back when they're driving the chariots because they've seen Ben-Hur. Uh, and they're, they're driving the chariot and, and they would be praised, but in front of them, not only would they be praised in front of them in this triumph as he's leading them in triumph. What does it mean he triumphed over them in front of the emperor, in front of the conquering hero, uh, were his enemies. So you'd have, the, you'd have the emperor in a chariot and in front of him, uh, stripped, beaten, chained, uh, shamed, as this says, publicly humiliated, right? Open shame, publicly humiliated would be his enemies. And that's what, that's what Paul is pointing to when he says that Jesus has triumphed his enemies, that he's triumphed them. And notice that it's in the triumph that they are, that they are shamed. He, he, he put them to open shame, how? By triumphing them. And, and a triumph was a very shameful thing. Naked in a street, handcuffed, pretty shameful thing. Being marched down a road while people cheer for the guy who beat you, pretty shameful thing. And Paul says, that's what Jesus has done to the rulers and authorities. And like, again, we saw that in Jesus' life. It was a shameful thing when the demons were like, please just put us in the hogs, right? There was no, there was no tit for tat sort of back and forth exchanging of blows here. I mean, he shamed them. He's like, yeah, going to the hogs, and they just leapt off the cliff to die. Like, I mean, there, there's no doubt that there is a the, 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 there is a shameful aspect to Jesus' mere presence. So he puts them to open shame. And so not only has Jesus beaten our enemies, he has made his victory clear for the world to see, for people to cheer, for his enemies to be shamed. And again, that's not a. This isn't. He doesn't say. Paul doesn't say this is what he's going to do one day. Paul doesn't say this is what's going to happen when Jesus returns. This isn't just a, a sweet by and by promise. Paul says this is what's happened already. And so Paul says that Jesus was, as we already saw uh, in, in the beginning, that Jesus is now seated because of his triumph over uh, his enemy. So what we saw in Revelation is, is brought up again in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. We'll see this again in just a second. It says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So seeing Christ's great power, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him 
at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. So Christ, as we saw in Revelation, is already seated. And we know from Revelation, why is he seated? He's seated because he's won, because he has conquered. And that's a sign of the great might that God has worked in Christ and the great might to beat these rulers and authorities and powers and dominions, as it says. And so then seats him in victory, as Revelation uh, uh, chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 5 tell us. That that's not just some future hope, that this is true, as he says, for this age and for the age to come. Even death, even death has already been beaten by Christ. So we see 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death. And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Christ has abolished death. Now that word abolish means to, sometimes it's translated in other passages to, to nullify, to wipe out, to bring to, a, to nothing, and to bring to nothing, to destroy. That's just not what Jesus will do to death. It's in some way what he has already done. And that's why Jesus can say to his disciples, in John 11, 25 and 26, he says, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? In fact, what's crazy is that Jesus used death. Remember, we saw last week that, that Satan wields death as his weapon. Well, in the crazy conquering of Christ... Jesus is the one who now wields the power of of death, turning it back on Satan. So in in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, what do we see? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So Jesus used his own death to destroy Satan, turning the weapon of death against him. So when we look at what do we see? We see the world, we see Satan as host, we see death. These great enemies that we saw that stand against us, they have been defeated by Jesus. They have been conquered by him. They have been overcome But Jesus beating these enemies is not the end of the story, is it? Because what's the reality? You and I look outside, our enemies are still very much a reality. They are still here. But the Bible Bible has no problem with saying that someone can be conquered and yet still be raging in battle, still be fighting. In fact, it does this about Satan himself in Revelation chapter 12. So the fact that the fact that their enemies are conquered, that they are beaten, doesn't mean that they are non-existent now. So Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 and 12, look what it says. And they have conquered Satan by the blood, conquered him, talking about Satan here, the devil, by the blood of the lamb 
and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their own lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So Satan, the devil, has been conquered and yet, in this very passage, he's been conquered and yet is still raging. Because he knows that he has lost. Because he knows his time is short. Like the last gasp of an army who, know, who has been beaten and who still flails about. So what does Jesus' life and victory then mean for us now? If, if Jesus conquered then, what's going on now? Well, now, presently, Jesus is reigning over our enemies. Because it could be that maybe just Jesus has defeated his enemies, but maybe his, his kingdom isn't here yet or something. But Jesus is clear that his kingdom is not, is not future alone, that he is reigning now. And sometimes it, it speaks of Jesus' reign just in general terms. The, the, the chief passage for understanding this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25. What does it say in 1 Corinthians 15, 25? He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now, what, do, what does this passage assume? It's saying Jesus must keep on reigning. He must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. What is that implying? It implies that he is reigning now and that he's going to keep reigning until all his enemies are defeated. And then as we know, the last enemy to be defeated will be death. But he is, he is reigning. He must reign until that happens. Jesus is reigning now and he must keep on reigning until all those enemies are under his feet, which again is encouragement to us. Because that means that what Jesus is doing, I mean, he is currently reigning. He's not, Jesus is not waiting until his enemies are being put under his feet. He is the one. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. In his reign, Jesus putting those enemies under his feet. But again, questions about Jesus' reign are not new. Is he reigning now? When's the kingdom going to come? Jesus had to address these in, in his own ministry. In Luke chapter 17. Verses 20 and 21. It says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look here, there, uh, look, it is here or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What he's saying here is that is the kingdom of God is not going to begin out there. It's not going to be like, look, the kingdom's in Jerusalem. Or, the, oh, the kingdom of God is in Ontario. Why would it be in Ontario? That's just the way God works. It's always a mystery. You know, it's, that's not something that's going to happen. In, instead, it's in the midst of you. But the fact that it's not going to begin out there or over there doesn't mean it doesn't begin. In fact, he says it does begin. It just begins. It's in the midst of you. And Jesus, what Jesus is saying is, if you can't see the kingdom of God that's right in front of your face then don't pretend that you're going to be looking for it over there or over there. It's, it is in the midst of you. In fact, so what Jesus is saying is that the fact that the kingdom of, of, of Christ is here is an obvious thing. The problem isn't that they were saying that Christ is reigning. That's not the problem. The problem wasn't that they're trying to make Christ reign. The problem is that they were trying to make his reign too small. In this village or that place, 
And Jesus says, no, he's reigning in and through all of his people. It is in the midst of you. It's not saying, this passage isn't saying Jesus' kingdom is just going to be ethereal. And this is saying that his kingdom is going to be everywhere. Not, this, this passage is, this isn't Jesus limiting the kingdom. That's what the Pharisees were wanting to do. They were wanting to limit the kingdom and put it there or here. This is Jesus, Jesus saying that his reign is so obvious you can't miss it unless you want to. And that's what the world wants to do. Because it is in the midst of his people. In fact, the Bible tells us that Christ's reign over our enemies has begun. So, I mean, in terms of the world, we all know the the Great Commission. But how does that Great Commission begin? Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus currently has authority over heaven and earth. That's what we saw in Revelation, that he is seated above all powers. And those powers include everything in heaven and on earth. We just, we, and that's why we say the world doesn't need to make Jesus Lord. They just need to recognize that he already is Lord. And they're either in rebellion to that Lord uh, or they're in service to that Lord. But it's not like Jesus is trying to recruit here. Jesus isn't trying to increase his straw poll numbers. I mean, Jesus is the king. He's ruling and reigning. He's seated because he's conquered. And you're you're either continuing to live in rebellion to a king who has already won and is currently reigning like some sort of weird satanic guerrilla warrior. Or you're seeing the king on his throne the kingdom that is in the midst of you, this kingdom of God that has grown and is obvious in and through his people and you're bowing in service to that king and his gospel, his good news, or you're willfully rebelling against it and throwing your life on the altar of the bad news. But he has authority over the world, the world that we're afraid of, over over the demonic. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28 this is, again, that, this is the uh, Mathean version of that Markan. Those are all, always fun words to use. Uh, this is the Matthew version of that Mark story uh, about the binding of the strong man. What, what, does, what does Matthew pick up there uh, and add in uh, chapter 12, verse 28? But, it, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, if Jesus has bound the strong man and he's casting out the demons by the power of God, then you know that the kingdom of God is here, ruling over those enemies. The kingdom is here, reigning. And so Ephesians 1, we go back to it and look at it again in light of him reigning over those enemies. Uh, uh, and you see there, what does it say? We won't read it all because we, we read it earlier. But look at what it says. Jesus sits currently above. This is down in verse 20 or 21. He sits above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Above all of it. And we saw how those rulers and dominions are satanic or at least a secular entities backed by the satanic. And Christ is, is sitting above them, above them all, sitting, reigning. Those powers are under his rule. He's, the, God has made him Lord of all, head over all. So, so, so you see here, the picture is of a, is of a reigning king. 
And Peter has talked about this. First Peter chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of the Father with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Now, when you read this and you read this in light of Revelation 3 and Revelation 5 and you read it in light of Ephesians 1, Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father right now, reigning over these things. He's not sitting at the Father until the Father goes, game time, go in. Jesus isn't just waiting on the bench till it's his time. You know, just sort of, what am I going to do? And he's like, well, it's not, I don't know the hour yet. Well, you're going to have to wait and then you can start doing your reigning thing. This is, he is seated because he has put all of these things in subjection to him. I mean, they might be in rebellion, but that does not mean he is not reigning. If you have rebels against a king, you don't automatically go, well, I guess the king isn't reigning because those guys don't want him to. Uh, maybe we'll get a new king someday when everyone is going to accept his ruler. Uh, no, I mean, he can be reigning and there still be rebels. He can be reigning and the demonic forces still be flailing about, but he is still reigning over them. So what do we have here? We have that Jesus has conquered our enemies, that he is reigning over our enemies But the Bible also gives us a future hope and expectation because our enemies are still there in each of these stories, right? I mean, he's reigning over rulers and authorities and powers. He's reigning over them. He's reigning over a world that we have to go and make disciples of. All those things are still a reality. We're going to face tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome them. Well, then, well, then the enemy's still there, but they've been overcome. The, there is still in the Bible a future promise that Jesus will utterly destroy our enemies. And do so forever. So that's sort of the progress of the kingdom. Remember, we know how does the kingdom work? It works like leaven in a lump that eventually leavens the whole thing. It works like a tree, uh, like a mustard seed that starts small. Eventually, uh, this giant tree. Uh, we know, as we, we, we've seen from Habakkuk and other places, that the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like waters cover the sea. We know all that. But in the meantime, what's going to happen as this tree is growing? There's a future promise. Then these enemies will be no more. Because... The, the, the problem is we might look at our enemies and the fact that we have enemies might make us wonder. Make us wonder about Christ's victory. Make us wonder about our own assurance of victory. Because you might look at the world and go, man, the world still seems pretty powerful. I mean, we, uh, we just did a conference on abortion. I mean, the world is killing 65 million babies. Now, the good thing is this is not a new thing. I mean, it's not like, you know, what do you see when you go back and when the, Ameri- uh, when, the, when the Europeans discovered America, right? They didn't find out that the Incans were a bunch of hippies that didn't know about bad things until we got here. Uh, what do you see? Pictures of them taking babies and throwing them into the fire. Now, had they read the Old Testament stories of Molech or something and gone, that's a great idea. Uh, I mean, so these things are not, are not new, but they're still a part of the problem, right? So we look at those sorts of things and we go, what is going to happen? When, when is, it, is, is this going to be stopped? Is Christ's reign sort of going to spiral down worse and, and worse and these enemies are going to look bigger and mightier? How do we know? What is going to be the end outcome? Jesus promises that eventually there will be a full end to all of our enemies and his. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we looked at. We looked at verse 24 and and 25, but let's look at 20 through 26. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. 
So, again, the, the question is, if, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then we're all still stuck in our sins and things aren't great. But Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom, uh, uh, the kingdom to God, the Father. Uh, so there again, see that the kingdom is already there. He doesn't create a kingdom and give it to the Father. He gives him the kingdom that he's already been reigning over and hands it to the Father. So the kingdom is already present. Uh, delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Jesus currently reigning and, and that reign is not going to be stopped by anything. Anything. He will reign. He will keep reigning until all his enemies are destroyed. Falling one by one until every enemy is under his feet. It's just that death is the last one. It's not that death is the only one. Every enemy of Christ will be under his feet when he hands the kingdom over to God. The, the, the future is secure, the Bible tells us, for Christ's kingdom and therefore for our kingdom and victory. That there's going to be there's going to be no coup. There's going to be no overthrow. And the Bible actually says that, that we will reign with, this is Daniel 7, I'd love to go into Daniel, Daniel would be great to go into, but we don't have months, and I'm not crazy to jump to the end of Daniel. Uh, be like, let's, let's do the end of Daniel, uh, and let's do Revelation, uh, and let's do the weird parts of Ezekiel, that's not what we're going to do right now. Uh, but one thing in Daniel that is useful for us here is in Daniel chapter 7, where we see this kingdom and dominion as well. It says, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. I mean, that's our future. What's interesting is part of our future is that those kingdoms are also given to us. And we know that the Bible tells us that we will judge angels and that we're going to reign with him and all that. But I don't want to focus on that. I want to look here at the surety of our future. That in the end, what does he say? His kingdom is going to be an everlasting one, just as promised back in, in 2 Samuel. I mean, this is the promise made to David. This is the, the, the promise that we've known for the Messiah all along. Uh, the, the, the end of the story is a new and greater Eden. Uh, all of these things that will last forever and won't just be a garden in Eden, but a world that is a garden. I mean, all of this stuff that the Bible is sort of moving us to. Uh, and, and here we see that his kingdom is going to be an everlasting one. And all dominion, there's not going to be any, there's not going to be any rebels. There's not going to be any that try to overthrow this kingdom. It says all kingdoms shall serve and obey him. And that's true. You go to the book of Revelation and the nations are bringing their glory to him. Right? The nations that tried to steal glory from the Lord, the kings that tried to, like Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, right, uh, that tried to build up for their own glory, uh, they're going to end up bringing glory to, uh, to him. And I think one of the, the clearest places where we see the final outcome for our enemies, uh, for, for the world, for Satan, and for death itself is actually Revelation chapter 20. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, beginning in, in verse 7, at the, at the end of the thousand years, the end of the millennium. It says, and when the thousand years are ended, 
Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they'd done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, so what do you see? You see all the enemies that we talked about, the, the, the world that hates and gathers against the people of God, that that world is going to be destroyed. It's going to be consumed by God, the devil thrown into the lake of fire, death thrown into the lake of fire with him, and also anyone who remains in rebellion to the Lord, whose name is not written in the book of life. So all three of those enemies in Revelation chapter 20, their end is sure and eternal and, and complete. So that these promises of Christ's victory end up meaning for us great security. So, so Paul, who knows this, writes to Timothy, and he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse, eight, verse 18. He says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So the, the victory that Christ promises us, the, the victory that he has won, the reign that he has, and the victory that he promises will be total and complete. What does that mean for us? It means that our king will rescue us from every evil deed. There is no enemy that you need to fear. From the world, from Satan, from death itself, there is no enemy that can take us and and harm us or that can take us from his heavenly kingdom the lord will rescue us from every evil deed and he will bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom and because of that we can give him glory forever and ever amen this is why it says to him give the glory both now and to the day of eternity in second peter this is why he says we are to praise him as our savior now and to the to the day of eternity or as paul says in second timothy 4:18 to him be the glory forever and ever amen because the lord has defeated your enemies His victory isn't just certain, it's here. He's currently reigning over those who would take your life and your hope and he will destroy them all. He'll destroy them all totally and completely and he will lead you into the kingdom that he is building right now in and through you by the power of his gospel. That's the good news. And that's why when when Peter says, give glory to our Savior, this is why we do. Because we who are so fearful so often are going to be rescued from every evil deed. And we will be brought safely into his kingdom. Our king promises us. How can you know he will? 
because he already has overcome our enemies. He's reigning now and he will destroy them completely and fully. Of that, he promises. So that's the reality. The question for us is, is that how we live? Are you living in the confidence? Because if we're going to give Christ glory, it's not just looking at this story and saying, yeah, that's great. I'm glad he's going to do that. If you're living in the glory and surety of Christ's word, then you'll be living in the confidence that your enemies have been defeated. Or do you allow anxiety or fear to continue to reign in your heart when they've, when they've been dethroned, defeated, destroyed, all those things, do you still give them a place as if the battle is still ongoing? So what does it mean to us to, to believe this? It means thinking of Jesus beating your enemies is not just some hope that you have for one day. Jesus has defeated your enemies and he's defeated them in a big way, meaning you have no reason to fear them anymore. We always like to talk about our our battle with sin and, and we should, but we should never think of that battle as if it is possible that our enemies will beat us. Our, our, our battle against sin is not a battle to see who's going to win. But the, the battle to believe that Christ has already won. In fact, we're supposed to be living in that triumph of Christ. Colossians says that, that, that Christ triumphed over his enemies. How strange that the, when you read the Bible, the enemies of God believe their defeat more than we do. The losers are more sure than the winners. The demons know they've lost. So remember what it said about Satan? Satan knows that his time is short. He knows it. That's why he's raging. How can Satan be more confident of Christ's victory than you are? Jesus reigns over our enemies even right now. What does that mean for us? If he is reigning over our enemies, how is he not reigning over every area of your life? It's funny that that Christians have sort of abrogated the reign of Christ and and acted as if all authority in in heaven and earth hasn't been given to him. As if it's still Satan, which is the the, the opposite of what Jesus says. We act as if Jesus' throne is just a future reality, and so we don't fight like warriors for the king. We've we've surrendered territory to an already beaten foe. Yet, what does Jesus expect us to do? He expects us to live in light of that victory. I mean, it is the reality that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. This is the reason that we're supposed to go and make disciples. This is sometimes why our going and make disciples is so powerless, because we don't do it the reason Jesus says we do it. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore... Go because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go with that confidence and make disciples. We go like mealy-mouthed, sort of frightened, timid mice. And we're like, do you want to know how to share Jesus without fear? You want to know how to share Jesus without fear? Read the Great Commission and see that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him and then believe that. The problem with sharing Jesus without fear isn't that you're too timid. The problem is that you're too unfaithful. You're unbelieving. 
The, the, promise isn't, the problem isn't your personality or that you're a shy person or you're this or you, you just don't know the way to start a conversation. The problem is that we're not reading and seeing Jesus declare, take heart, I've overcome the world. We're not seeing him talk about him reigning over powers and dominions and authorities. We're not seeing his promise that he'll rescue us from every evil deed and going, and then seeing that he's saying, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, go and make disciples, knowing that you're serving the king who is one. We don't believe that. And so we kind of think we're serving the little guy. We act like we're preaching for the underdog and we talk like it. There's a reason that people who like Oklahoma State always walk around with their head down. Right? Right. (laughs) Lately, so have people who like OU. Let's just be honest. But if our king has won, right? I mean, there is a reason that in every airport we go to on our mission trips, point at the sign and I say, English. Right? You go, that's right. I point at their Levi's, their blue jeans, right? And you look at all these. Why? Because we live in the greatest country in the world. Right? We don't go around going, from America. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, and we can talk about, you know, we, we talk about how our military could beat, I mean, basically every combined military in the world. We could probably beat them. Christ is greater than any of those things. And yet we are less confident than anything else. You can have the worst basketball team in the world and you'll talk about them as if they have won every NBA championship for the last 40 years. You can have, you, your team, can, my team hasn't won, the, the Sooners haven't won in about, in two decades. And I'm like, you know, they're right, they're just about to, they're just about to hit, go, they're going to be the next Alabama, you know. We have so much confidence in things that, in things and people who haven't won. And here is Christ who has won this great victory and we're the timid ones. You know, it's not even that we're just timid. You know, the, the greater problem isn't that, we're, uh, that we don't believe that and go with confidence. The problem is his reign is not affecting our lives. That's why our, his reign isn't affecting when we talk to others. The reason we're so unconfident uh, when we talk to others about the reign of our Lord is because when we look at our life, we don't see a lot of reigning in, in many places. We are celebrating that Jesus is reigning over our enemies. We're, we're rejoicing, taking joy and hope. But, but is he reigning over you? I mean, is, is his reign giving you peace? Is it giving you guidance? Are you celebrating Jesus' reign over your, your enemies, but shirking his reign in certain areas of your own life? Is Jesus reigning over your enemies, but not over you? Not over your time, not over your your attitude, not over how you treat your wife, not over your finances, not over how you are as a church member. There are areas that you go, "Eh, Jesus isn't going to reign there. Whereas every area of your life, are you serving in, in service to that king? Every area. How about the future victory of Jesus? Does the certainty that Jesus' victory is final and complete change how you view and live your life today? Do you remember in Revelation who crushed the serpent? Who conquered him? It was those who love not their own lives even unto death. Now, how can we do that? How can we be that type of people who are used by the Lord that will soon crush Satan underneath their feet, as Paul's going to tell us? 
We do that when we believe, when we truly believe that death is not the end because our Savior has won, because he is reigning, and that he will one day totally and finally defeat all of our enemies and rescue us and bring us into that kingdom that has no end. Jesus has beaten our enemies. He is reigning over them, and he will one day wipe them all out. Do you believe that? Are you living like you do? Let's pray. Let's just take this time to rejoice. Let's begin prayer just by, as it says in several of those passages, just giving him glory. After, after talking about these things, what did it say? To him be the glory. To him be the glory. So just take a moment and give glory to your God. Give glory to the Father for sending the Son. Give glory to the Son for the victory that he has won. And the hope that he has given you. The, the surety. The firm foundation. The confidence. And we can't expect the world to treat him like king if we're not. We can't shake our heads that the world doesn't understand that they've been beaten if we're not sure that he has won yet. So give him all the glory that he deserves. And Father, we do start out, God, just by praising you, giving you glory as our great and, and sovereign God. We are thankful for your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we rejoice that though our enemies are fearful, and sometimes many, Father, we know that your victory is certain, secured, that, Father, you are reigning even now over them, and one day will reign forever. So, Father, help us to have confidence in the work of Christ and help us to be obedient to both call the world to serve the King and to serve him with our own lives as well. What great joy. What great peace to know that you will rescue us from every evil deed and bring us safely into the kingdom. May our lives show that peace, that joy, that hope, that glory. And Father, we are about to celebrate it as we come to the supper of our King and we see where his victory came from. May we lift him up as he was lifted up. May we exalt him the king not just of the Jews, but of the world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.